0: Uh, Crucial to Christianity is the reality that Jesus Christ is one day coming back. Uh, And that's the consistent claim of the Bible. Jesus Christ, who came once before, uh, 2,000 years ago, to prove God's faithfulness to his promises and to prove God's love to a world of sinners, uh, he came to die on a cross for our sins, to rise again in proof of his deity, and ascend to heaven in glory to the right hand of the Father. And before he ascended in glory, he said, in no uncertain terms, I'm coming back. This world has not seen the last of me. Uh, But the way he put it was that next time you see me, it won't be in weakness and frailty. I'll be coming with great power and awesome glory. Next time I won't allow mere mortals to judge me, All all judgment has been entrusted to me by the Father. I'll be doing the judging, he says. And it's for that reason that Jesus taught the importance of being ready for his return. And the question I'm asking you tonight is, are you ready? Well, his, his followers believed that Jesus was coming back. This is what we see in the Thessalonians. They were super keen. In fact, every chapter finishes in this book with a note. On every main section finishes with this note on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a key theme in this book. But they've been thinking a lot about it. But it seems that they're a little bit anxious about whether or not they would be ready for it. Do you ever worry about that yourself? Do you ever think about that? Your own readiness for what is called this great Day of the Lord, because if that day really is a day of reckoning, as the Bible suggests, and if judgment is so severe, as the Bible is very honestly, honestly puts it, how do you actually get ready for it? And uh, what do you think will help you get ready for it? Well, some might say putting a date in the diary would be useful. Pin it down in some way, uh, even to a season. I mean, if we knew Jesus come, was coming back next spring, it would help us get ready in some way. Much in the same way that you would know you would get ready. You know, if you knew your mother-in-law was coming to visit, for example, you get the to die out and you give the place a little bit of a clean. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11, Paul answers this question that the Thessalonians have about being ready for Christ's return. And I think he... He responds in quite a surprising way, but it shouldn't really be surprising, really, to people who believe and who love the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5, uh, but let's pray before we do that. Father, we praise you for your word, for the fact that it gives light to our eyes and makes wise the simple. Uh, Help us to cherish it tonight, to enjoy it to be taught by it, and by your grace to believe it and put it into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly Build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Amen. This is God's word. So chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, is essentially Paul's response to their question, how can we be ready for his coming? And tonight we're going to think it through in two main points. In verses 1 to 5, number one, you are already ready. You're already ready. And then second point, help each other enjoy Being ready, verses 6 to 11. So point one, you're already ready, verses 1 to 5. So after quickly dismissing the idea that you can put a date in the diary, as he does in verse 1, Paul reminds all of us how the day of the Lord will come. He talks about how it comes suddenly and without warning. Do you see that in verse 2? Look with me. You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That is suddenly without warning. Now, that is the annoying thing about thieves. They don't set a time and a date for their criminal activity. That would be handy if they did. I mean, you don't get a letter saying, hi there, I'm uh, burgling your house on Tuesday at 3 a.m. Love, Keith the Thief. No, you don't don't get thieves standing outside your house at 3 a.m. on Tuesday saying, hi, it's me. I'm coming in now. You know, that, that kind of thing just does not happen. Thieves arrive unannounced. Their coming is unexpected. That's the point of the illustration. And that's how it will be at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes back, it will be sudden and unexpected. He will come without warning. Now, look at what Paul says here. Look at what he does. He he starts to contrast those for whom the return of Christ will be sudden and unexpected surprising and those who will find it to be sudden but not surprising in the slightest. Okay? Sudden and surprising. Sudden and not surprising at all. Now, some will be surprised. Let's look at them first. Here are the folks that are described in verses 2 and 3. People going about their everyday lives. Verse 2b says, While people are saying, peace and safety, in other words, offering greetings to each other, destruction will come upon them suddenly. While people are going about their daily lives, ordering a turkey for Christmas dinner, expecting to eat it, writing an email, expecting to send it, lining up a shot at goal, expecting to score it, greeting their neighbor. Hey, how's it going? Expecting to finish their greeting when the Lord Jesus returns. Now, what a surprise that will be. What an understatement that is, actually. I mean, you would be surprised, wouldn't you, if the person whose existence you had adamantly denied turns up in the sky with an unmissable display of glory. You're going to be shocked. What a surprise to have lived your life thinking that that you are the focus of your own existence. That you're a product of godless evolutionary development. That you are answerable to no one except maybe the government and the police. Only to find on that day when your eyes widen, your jaw drops, and your heart is actually gutted at the sudden realization that Jesus Christ is real and he's coming. You can see him. And that you've got it wrong. Now for them, Paul says, verse 3, destruction will come upon them. It's a word that communicates total ruin. Let that sink in. Just ruin. It's actually used again in two Thessalonians. Paul's second letter to this church in Thessalonica. In chapter 1, verse 8, it says Jesus will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will be, verse 9, punished with everlasting destruction. What does that destruction look like? He explains. Shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Brothers and sisters, friends, that is hell described for you. Shut out from the presence and the glory of God. There is nothing nothing worse. Now, the dreadful thing about this surprised realization is that by then, it's too late. There's no second chance. Destruction, the destruction described will come unavoidably so, like labor pains. Now, when those contractions get going, that baby's coming. That's the point of this illustration. That's how their destruction is described. It is the very opposite, is it not, of this peace and safety that they're saying to each other. They're not at peace at all. There is no safety from his wrath and his judgment when he comes. The only peace and safety, friends, is found in trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is all. To be reconciled with God through faith in Jesus Christ by trusting in his blood shed on the cross, believing that God raised him from the dead three days later, that wrapped up in all of that is the display of God's love and the offer of forgiveness that if you accept it and receive it, you're his. No longer children of the night, but children of the day. No longer facing destruction, but truly able to say, on the day Christ comes back, peace, safety in him. I'd love to talk to anyone who's not a Christian tonight. If you've never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sin have you ever seen your sin to be that loathsome thing and his forgiveness to be the greatest thing in this world we'd love to have a chat with you about that I'll be at the door for about 10 minutes afterwards and then lingering about with a cup of coffee afterwards come and chat talk to the person who brought you Uh, fill in one of the the forms at the information point so we can have a chat with you about this this is important stuff So Paul is talking about these people who will be surprised in this category. And verse 4, he actually goes on to describe exactly who he's talking about. In fact, he goes on to describe the the condition and the status of those who have not believed the gospel, have not trusted Christ for forgiveness. He says that they, in verse 4 are those who are in darkness, or as he says in verse 5b, those who belong to the night. We need to understand darkness here. Darkness in the Bible is a metaphor really for three things. The age we live in now, uh, unbelief, and separation from God in eternity. And all three are actually interconnected. And salvation then, as an opposite, is actually described as God bringing people out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And if this is you, again, please listen to this. These are the words of Jesus himself from John 12. Whoever walks in the darkness does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Now, this is the key. This is the key to being ready for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to be ready for the return of Christ then is to trust in Christ right now. And that's what makes the sudden return of Christ not surprising in the slightest to this other group that's described by Paul in the passage. He says some will not be surprised by the return of Christ. Why not? Verse 4, but you brothers and sisters, so he's referring to those who have trusted in Christ, these are are the people who have believed the gospel, as he says in chapter 1, loved by God and chosen by him, demonstrating faith, hope, and love, as true marks of true Christianity. And he says, you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. In other words, you are ready for his coming. Why? Because you know all about it. As verse 2 says, you are enlightened. You have this knowledge of it. You know very well, he says, that it's coming. And how it's coming. And that's what makes all the difference. You're not surprised by it because you're already ready for it. You've seen it in advance. You know what's coming. My brother-in-law, Kyle, is a real practical joker. Um, It's really annoying, actually. He's 36. I mean, he's not grown up at all in the slightest. Now, I was at uh, my mother-in-law's house uh, one time, and I was sent upstairs to get an extra seat for the table. And I was walking along the hallway, passing this window uh, at the bottom of the stairs where there's just two full-length curtains there. And uh, as I was walking past, all of a sudden, the curtain just kind of flapped back wildly. And there's this Kyle, you know, he's a rugby player. He's a big dude, and he's just kind of roaring at me. And i got the fight of my life, a little, a little whimper, I think, or maybe a scream of some kind. But, you no, know, unknown to me, he had hidden himself away, and there he was, this 36-year-old child, sniggering away behind the curtain in anticipation of his hapless victim. That's what happens, right? When someone plays that kind of practical joke on you, when something happens that you're not expecting, you get a fright. But imagine if you replay the situation, and I'm just being sent by my mother-in-law to go and get a chair from upstairs, and she says, and by the way, Kyle's hiding behind the curtain in the hall, right? Do you think I'm going to react any differently as I approach that curtain Or as the curtain flaps wildly and the rugby player roars at me, I'm going to be like, get a life, 36-year-olds. You act differently. Why? Because you operate in anticipation of that which is coming. You're not surprised by it at all. I'm not surprised by it. I'm ready for it. And that's exactly how it will be. For those who are believers looking forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We may not be selling all of our stuff at jumbo sales and sitting on our front lawns looking up at the sky just waiting for him to come. But as we go about our daily lives, we operate with the full knowledge Jesus Christ is coming back one day and it might be today. So that when he comes, we'll be ready for it. That's how it is for those who see things in the clear light of God's word. Verse 5 says, you are all children of the light. Children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. I read a moment ago from uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 of the inevitable fate of those who live in darkness of unbelief when Jesus returns. But I didn't read to you what verse 10 said immediately afterwards. It says, he will come to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. So children of the light won't cry out in fear. They won't cry out in anguish. Children of the light will cry out in praise because the thing that they've been waiting for all their days has happened. The return of our Lord Jesus Christ. See what Paul's saying? You see how he responds to those who in their infancy these Thessalonians, in their immaturity in their faith. They wonder if they're really going to be ready when Christ comes back. Because that day, according to the Bible, sounds really pretty dreadful and serious. But he says you're already ready because through faith in Christ, you don't belong to the night or to the darkness. You belong to the day and to the light, and you're looking forward to it. It's not going to surprise you. You're already ready. It's glorious, isn't it? What an answer. Some will not be surprised in the slightest by the return of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I have to ask you, do any of you ever feel that little tinge of fear at not being ready for the return of Jesus? Does that ever crossed your mind? You ever felt a bit down in your spirit or in your heart because you just thought, you know what, I've had a terrible week. i think we all do maybe sometimes we just think life is quite hard and actually knowing the time or date or even if it was like a season you know next summer three months maybe by that i could put in some serious effort i don't know scrub myself up a little bit more do we ever find ourselves thinking through those things brothers and sisters that's not the gospel Believing the full weight of the promises of our Lord God says to us that if you have truly believed the gospel, God is sufficient in his love and in his grace toward you, you're already ready. It's good news, isn't it? It's good news. Let's not, friends, undermine the gospel we believe by sneaking some good works into it. I need to scrub myself up. I've had a bad week, I can't rejoice in the gospel so much. I can't look forward to the return of Christ because of this particular sin that I'm struggling with. No, 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 no. Brothers and sisters, he loved us while we were still sinners. He loves us now that we are sinners saved by grace, being sanctified by his Holy Spirit. He delights in us already and since his coming day, Will be a marvel to us. We will marvel at him. Marvel at him today. Marvel at him today. Practice for that day when you will be wowed out of your skull when he comes. Now, there are implications to being children of light. Paul quite clearly goes on in this passage to say, look, knowledge of that day is supposed to change how we live today. We've got to try and live in a way that's consistent with our status as children of light and let the knowledge of what is to come shape how we live today. Not in a way that we're trying to scrub ourselves up to present ourselves to God in some way, but just with that solid and glorious foundation of being already ready. Already forgiven, already deeply loved. Yes, do you know what? Since you've loved me in this way, that motivates me big time to live for you. Do you not get that? That's gospel living. Now last week or last time, we saw that the return of Christ changes how we feel about death. It changes how people die. It changes how people grieve. We die differently. We grieve differently. What Paul goes on to say in this second point is, that the return of Christ changes how we live. We live differently. We ought to be those, as verses 6 to 10 say, we ought to be those who help each other enjoy being ready. Help each other enjoy being ready. That's point two. So what Paul wants us to do is to stir in each other a continual awareness of the day of the Lord. Remind each other regularly that he's coming back. And again, what the Apostle Paul does in this verses 6 to 10 is offer some kind of comparison. Comparing those who belong to the darkness with the children of light again, unbelievers and believers. Verse 6 says, So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Now, brothers and sisters, Paul wants us to stay awake and sober to the reality of Christ's return. And that's the kind of thing that helps us to live lives that are consistent with the gospel that we profess to believe and lives that are consistent with the knowledge that we have of the impending return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, what Paul does with this contrast Uh, Again, with darkness, children of darkness, children of light, he says people in darkness are characterized by sleepiness and drunkenness. Now, Paul isn't saying that people who don't know uh, or who don't believe in Jesus stay in bed all day, uh, nor is he saying that they are continually drunk. He's speaking metaphorically again, actually. Think about it. I wonder if you've ever played a trick on someone who's sleeping. My brother-in-law Kyle has. Um, you know, you put shaving foam in their hand and tickle their nose or something funny like that. I'm smiling, I should know, that's very immature. Uh, But sleepy people, think about what they are. Sleepy people are unconscious to the reality of the world going on around them, right? They're actually in dream world, and while others around them are effectively in the real world. And the same goes for people who are drunk. Alcohol is, is a depressant. That doesn't mean that it makes you depressed, it just means that it dulls your brain function. You don't operate properly, you don't think straight, you act foolishly, that's why people sing karaoke. But what would you expect of people living? What would you expect of people living in a contrasting realm? So as we start to think about those who are Christians, so those who belong to the darkness and belong to the night. The nighttime people. Those who are not believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have not obeyed the gospel and love God. They are, according to the Bible, dull to the reality of the return of Christ and the world around them. And depressed. Dulled. Acting Foolishly, not according to sobriety. Now, what do you expect then the contrasting behavior will be for the children of light? Well, staying awake, staying sober. Again, metaphorically speaking, don't be unaware of the reality around you. You're all going to heaven if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. A million people are going to hell, eternal judgment. People you and I love deeply. Materialism, pornography, and a million other thing, things seek to dull our senses to the remembrance of the fact that the gospel is good and Christ is returning. So Paul says, don't be unaware of the reality of the world around you. Stay awake. Don't be dulled by the world's intoxicants. Stay sober. Stay awake to the reality that Jesus Christ is coming back. How? How exactly should we do that? Well, in two wonderful ways in this passage. First of all, help each other by putting on the armor of faith, hope, and love. By checking each other out. Checking what each other's wearing. In a sense to check that we're all suitably ready for defending ourselves against the intoxicants and the sedatives of this dark world. Now, notice that Paul is not asking for the church to get themselves ready to go into some kind of monastery to seclude themselves off from the world. He's helping them get ready to live in the world, wearing the right kind of stuff. So he talks about this armor, and it's a common thing. The knowledge of Christ's return helps us in helps us to encourage each other to have this faith. The faith that in chapter one functions, has got an operational quality to it. It doesn't sit and do nothing, it's active. The knowledge of Christ's return for those who are awake helps, to, helps us to encourage each other to have a love that labors, a love like Jesus' love that lays itself down for the benefit of other people gives up its own wants and preferences, its own selfish desires for the sake of other people, right? And then the knowledge of Christ's return helps us encourage each other to have this hope that hangs on. The hope that hangs on to the promises of God and his faithfulness and the promise of his, the return of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even, even when life is very, very hard. So we put on this faith, hope and love. We put these things on, and then we make sure that we're all ready for battle by being mutually encouraged. Mutually looking out for each other's faith. Mutually looking out for each other's love. Mutually looking out for each other's hope. This necessitates close quarters discipleship with each other. Have you got that? Are you in those kind of relationships? I don't really care if they're formal in terms of a growth group or yak or timeout or whatever. Uh, Do you at least have something that's informal? Where you're reading the Bible, praying with someone? Some some kind of accountability? People to encourage you. People who are willing to love you enough to tell you when you're doing something that's inconsistent with the gospel. We need those things. So we help each other by putting on this armor of faith, hope, and love. And checking with each other that we're all wearing it. But the second thing we do is we help each other look forward to this coming day. We help each other stay awake and stay sober by remembering the gospel together. It's simple. By remembering the gospel together. Here is proof that you're already ready for Christ's return. Your readiness is not based on what you do, but on what God has done. That's what Paul says here, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation... Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says he died for us. So our readiness for that eternal day, for that return, it rests on God's appointment. Our destiny is in his hands. Our readiness rests on what we're appointed to receive. Not wrath. Not his settled judgment against sin. But salvation. Rescue from it. And into his glory. And our readiness, according to Paul, rests not on you. It rests on a person, but it's not you. It's on Jesus Christ, our Lord. And our readiness rests on his cross. He died for us to take away the sins that would really make us unready. Now listen to this. What Paul says is, he died for us so that whether we are awake Or asleep, we may live together with him. Now, what do you think the word awake means in that passage? And what do you think the word asleep means? Have a look at it. I think I've always thought that he was just coupling those who've died, dealing with the end of chapter 4 and those who remain alive dealing with chapter 5 in one go, coupling them. So that whether you're dead or alive at Christ's return, we're all going to live together with him. But that's not what it is. The word that Paul uses for asleep here is not the same word that he uses for death, the same word that he uses in chapter 4 to talk about death, death. It's a different word altogether. In fact, the word that's used in chapter 5 for a sleep here is never used of sleep uh, death. Now, what he's he's not talking about death here, he's actually talking about drowsiness. He's talking about that kind of sedate life. He's talking about Christians who lose their zeal, who become intoxicated at times by these materialistic comforts that we often enjoy in this life. Or whose whose senses or whose awareness and alertness of the return of Jesus is dulled by maybe a relationship, something else that they want more or instead of that. He's talking about Christians People for whom the return of Christ has actually become a rare thought. People who don't tell the gospel to anyone because they've maybe become sleepy to the reality of a lost world around them. But praise God, brothers and sisters, for the full and the comprehensive grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because what he's saying here, Paul is saying here is that whether we're wide awake, caffeinated Christians, you know, zealously introducing the return of Christ into every single prayer and every single conversation that we have with people, or dull and drowsy, you know, longing to be that little bit more godly, but really being quite ungodly in practice. The Lord promises, you're already ready. (laughs) You're already ready. Isn't that good news for people like me and people like you who feel like we're fluctuators? You know, keen beans one day, can't be bothered the next. Bible-loving one day, drinking it in and indifferent the next. Up early one day, snoring the next. Full of testimony one day, sinfully silent the next. You know, if Jesus returned on one of those off days, we might have the thought that he would find us sleeping and not awake and alert. And we might think, oh, I'd give anything to have that day back again. But fine. But is our salvation in peril? No. No this passage tells us in black and white that our readiness is tied up, not with our performance, but with God's appointment and Christ's cross. And there is nothing sure than that. So, brothers and sisters, rouse each other, poke and prod each other, Wake each other up so that we might stay alert to the reality of Christ's return. Marvel at it now, as we will do on that day, as the Apostle Paul says at the end of this section, verse 11. Therefore, therefore, in light of all of what he's just said, encourage one another. So, in other words, get alongside each other in the church family. Turn each other's eyes towards the horizon of Christ's coming, away from all these things that would dull our senses and, in fact, inhibit us, stop us talking to the people who desperately need to hear this gospel that we already believe. Turn our eyes to the horizon. When grief rocks us, encourage each other. Get alongside each other and encourage each other. Jesus is coming back. When waves of doubt crash against us and we think, I'm, I'm thinking really hard, I'm struggling with this. Get together, turn each other's eyes to the horizon. Jesus came once, we know that. He's coming back again. When things are going well and we don't really have many worries in life, that's, I mean, that's just as big a risk as when things are really hard. Get alongside each other. Turn each other's attention to the horizon. Say, Jesus is coming back. Stay alert. Encourage each other. Come alongside so that we might stay sober. And lastly, build each other up. Fortify and strengthen one another's faith. In fact, what Paul talks about here is totally collective. It's not individual instruction here. This is to a church. Fortify and strengthen one another within the church family so that you build up your local church family into a house that stands strong. Always look into the sky, but always busy in the world. Always, without question, alert, awake, ready, because you're already ready. Praise God for his gospel. Yes? Let's pray together.